0: Hello, uh, my name is Adam Spees, and I'm excited to journey and begin our journey with you through the book of 1 Corinthians. This conversation will take us through most of the summer. We're hopeful to give Dan some extended time off uh, as Aiden, Jonathan, and I uh, will lead. But have no fear, we've held some of those uh, difficult conversations in 1 Corinthians uh, for Dan Uh As we begin a new book, uh, there are great opportunities and avenues for you to journey along with us. As with every series here at the Norton Campus, we create a series guide. This one was done by uh, Dana Barnett, and he did a fabulous job, one of our volunteers. And so I'd invite you personally, uh, maybe grabbing someone else, just to read through the study guide, discuss it, I would encourage you, uh, there's 16 chapters in the book of 1 Corinthians, determine a plan and read through uh, a certain amount of times over the summer. Hey, As we begin a new book, uh, it correlates to me with the idea of travel. I know as beginning of summer, probably many of us have hopes and aspirations and countdowns to uh, our impending trip, right? And uh, maybe many of us like to travel, but in particular, it reminds me of traveling overseas. My brother-in-law uh, has lived in Europe for the last six years. Uh, he's an architect, and he lives in Switzerland. Well, over the last few years, he's met a lovely lady by the name of Katerina, and uh they decided to wed. And so uh, we had a wedding uh, this past fall, and COVID was still a concern. So uh, they chose to get married in Italy uh, because it was a little easier for people traveling overseas. And they chose Lake Como, Italy, as their destination. Now, Lake Como is um, a beautiful, long lake. It's like an upside-down Y in the swiss alps kind of between italy and switzerland and uh it's known uh as a kind of travel resort a destination there uh are many famous people sylvester salone madonna george clooney uh, who have homes on uh, lake como uh, many movies have been shot there james bond 007 uh, one of the star wars movies And so it's a popular destination. And so as I look forward to that time of traveling, just like any trip, especially overseas trip, I do a lot of research, learn about the history and the Renaissance, the villas that are on Lake Como um, that have been there for many, many years. Uh, That's probably why my brother-in-law appreciated there because of his uh, architectural passion And uh, it is just uh, such a beautiful scenery. Uh, We had a blast there this fall, and uh, they got married, and uh, you see just the beautiful backdrop. Uh, There I'm in my clearance tux, found one at Men's Warehouse, uh, took that with me overseas, and we had a wonderful time uh, celebrating with family, uh, but taking in the scenery as well. Uh, being able to travel on one of their ferries to Verona uh, and climbing kind of some of the mountains and uh, seeing just the beautiful architecture and being able to look down. Now, uh, when I think of my experience in Lake Como, I think of the the thirst, the desire uh, to learn about culture. I think of my experience driving there on very narrow, windy roads, uh, that was relatively frightening. It was a very different experience. Well, when we enter uh, a book of Scripture, there's a culture behind the book. It's written in a different time frame, to a different group of people, uh, to a different place in the world, and it's helpful for us to understand a little bit more about those people as we jump in to kind of uh, unpack the conversation that is going on. The book of 1 Corinthians was written uh, to the people of Corinth. Now, Corinth exists today. Uh, It's much smaller than it was back then. Uh, Today, there's about 60,000 inhabitants. Back then, uh, it was 10 plus more times that. Uh, as many as six hundred, six hundred and fifty thousand people called Corinth home. Corinth was near Athens, uh, just thirty to forty miles kind of uh, south west of Athens. And um, it was populated uh, by many people that had left Rome, kind of freedmen that were just above uh, those the class of slaves. They had made their way to Corinth because of uh, economic prosperity. Now, Corinth was uniquely situated as a city uh, to receive commerce because they were in the middle of the east and west trade routes. People would be traveling from the Adriatic to the Aegean Sea. And uh, instead of making the long voyage, They would save some 200 miles, and this voyage was very treacherous. They had a cape down here at the bottom of the Peloponnesian Peninsula that said, you must write out your will, right? It was really treacherous, really dangerous. And so people chose to come through Corinth. And there's a small neck that divided kind of northern Greece from southern Greece, and it was only about three and a half to four miles wide. It's called an isthmus, right? Uh, That's a little hard to say, Uh, but that area, you would find people that docked uh, at this kind of shipping port on this side and also on the other side. And often they would unload their luggage. Uh, They would pull their boat out of the water, put it on wheels if they could, and they would travel across. You may say, why didn't they build a canal? Well, they attempted to do that uh, in the first century under Nero. But for some odd reason, it took about 18 centuries for them to be able to finish that canal. And so people would come to Corinth and they would stay. And uh, they had a good time because it was an entertainment capital of the day. Uh, uh, In Athens, they held the Olympic Games. But a close second uh, to the Olympic Games was the Smithian Games, right? And uh, they had people come from all over the world uh, in a stadium of some 20,000 people uh, that would be there for the Games. Now, there was a dark side uh, to the entertainment aspect in Corinth. And uh, it was very polytheistic. They had uh, around the city as many as 26 different sacred places. Probably the most famous was that of the Temple of Aphrodite. And it was up on a hill of the city. And there in this temple were a thousand priestesses or prostitutes who every night would practice their trade. It was often said that some people couldn't afford a trip to Corinth. Because this uh, immorality was readily accepted. It was part of doing life, of being in and out of the city. They had a reputation much like uh, Sin City. And uh, it was an experience uh, to go to Corinth. And many of them uh, struggled now. When you think of that, it provides a uh, significant opportunity for the church. Paul, here on his second missionary journey, uh, made his way around and ended up landing at Corinth. They didn't have much presence there. It was a very dark place, Uh, but Paul began to go in the synagogue as he naturally did. And in the Jewish synagogue, he began to share about Jesus as the Messiah. Quickly on, uh, he met a couple by the name of Aquila and Priscilla, husband and wife pair. And uh, Paul may have had the opportunity to lead them to Christ. They had come from Rome because uh, there was um, kind of turmoil in Rome. And the governor there, they think maybe because of Uh, Christians, because of Jews turning to Christ, created some controversy, so he expelled everyone from Rome. And Aquila and Priscilla made their way there. And so Paul began to invest and disciple them. There was uh, the head of the synagogue by the name of Crispus. He comes to faith in Christ through Paul's ministry. And uh, so they appoint uh, another head of the synagogue Uh, His name is Sosthenes, and we see here at the beginning of the letter his name mentioned. We have every reason to believe it's the same guy, but he was beaten, and it seems to that he eventually led to Christ. Well, this early church, they were kicked out of the synagogue. They happened to do life together in the home of Justice, who was right next to the synagogue. Paul spent a year and a half there, just investing himself, sharing about who Jesus was, uh, his resurrection, uh, the hope of the gospel. But the time came uh, that there was so much controversy. He was a rather cantankerous guy to some. And so uh, a new governor by the name of Galileo, uh chose to kick Paul out. And uh, he had to leave and he went to Ephesus. And so there, Paul leaves the church. And uh, while in Ephesus, he begins to have some correspondence with this church that he planted. Now, the unique thing about uh, his correspondence with the Corinthians is that it's more than any other book in the New Testament. All right, what we're going to unpack is what we call 1 Corinthians. But it'd be more appropriately to think of it as 2 Corinthians. Because within this letter, we see that Paul had addressed a previous letter that he had wrote to him that we do not have. He's writing this in response uh, to a letter he received from Chloe's household, speaking about some of the difficulties that they were encountering and questions um, affirmation that the church was asking about his previous letter. And so Paul writes this letter in response to some of the difficulty and the problems that this new church is facing. It's like they have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. And so Paul's primarily writing this, to address a lot of the problems that they have brought themselves, asking for clarification. So we're gonna see throughout the letter that there are uh, issues of immorality, uh, a wild abuse of gifts, extreme selfishness, pride, factionism that Paul will address throughout this letter. In general, Throughout the book, Paul is giving gospel principles that address communal problems. And I firmly believe that there are many significant things for us as a church family that we can take through what Paul wrote, led by the Holy Spirit, to the Corinthian church. Now, as Paul begins every letter, uh, we see him address himself, the authority with which he has, Right? And to acknowledge his readers, he begins by saying, Paul called to be an apostle because he met Jesus there on the road to Damascus. Right? He, by the will of God, and our brother, there's that, Sothenes, um, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Their Lord and ours. Grace and peace. Right? Uh, he often addresses his letter with those two words. Some commentators think uh, grace was maybe a common saying to the Gentiles while peace, shalom, was among the Jews. But we can never understand the peace of God until we've embraced the grace of God. There's significance in that order. Grace and peace to you from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul opens all of his letters with this idea of thanksgiving. And there's nothing different in that as we see in 1 Corinthians. He goes on to say, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, You do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the Lord so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now there's a few significant things that Paul points out to be thankful for. He mentions twice for their salvation in Jesus, for their improved speech and knowledge for their spiritual gift, which God gave to them, for their eagerness awaiting the Lord's return. The fact that God will one day make them blameless, not because of their own activity, their own effort, but rather because of their belief in the finished work of Jesus, that we too can stand blameless before God in the future. So Paul's thanking them, for who they are, what they have, and what they've hoped and yet to experience. And it's a reminder that's embedded. You see uh, the Lord Jesus mentioned here in each and every verse, right? But the gospel reveals who I am, what we have, and what our destiny is in Christ. And so Paul opens with thanksgiving. Uh, because of their identity in Christ, uh, that God has gifted them in every way that is needed for the challenges, for the opportunities that they have, but also the hope that we can have in our soul of being reunited in perfect unity, and unison, without sin, with God forever. These twin themes of kind of Identity in Christ and awaiting his return will run all throughout the book. Now, what's interesting is what Paul didn't say about the church in Corinth. right? Because if you compare that to some of his other letters in Colossians, he mentions uh, their love for one another and the fact that they were bearing much fruit. In the book of Philippians, he mentions their zeal and wanting to share the gospel with others. In 2 Timothy, he's writing to one of his disciples, Timothy, and he mentions his strong faith that he is thankful for. In Romans, he's thankful for their faith being proclaimed through all the world. And here in Corinth, he's still thankful, but it's for general things that are shared because of Christ rather than uh, necessarily their activity. Because Paul's primary thrust is to address the problems that have plagued the Corinthian church. And so we're going to see the first problem that he hits head on is factions and divisions within the church. Because he's responding uh, to what Chloe's household has shared related to uh, how they've divided amongst themselves in this early church in Corinth can follow along with me in verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, Apollos another Cephas, or Peter, one of the uh, early apostles, and another Christ. He goes on to say, is Christ divided? Was Paul, talking about himself, crucified for you? Absolutely not. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. I thank God that I didn't baptize any of you, except Crispus, the former head of the synagogue, and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but rather to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and elegance, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So here we see that Paul is addressing their primary allegiance right? It's to a person rather than to Christ. And so they've divided themselves amongst each other. The word behind there is schisma. Uh, It's where we get schism. It's uh, like to tear apart a fabric in multiple pieces. And they've been divided over their attachment to various people. There uh, was a faction that followed Paul, Apollos, Peter, and Christ. And uh, it was a common thing in uh, their environment or setting because the Greeks were very familiar uh, with speakers that would travel and come to town. And they would uh, build an audience around those who had a strong personality, a gift that they could speak with wisdom and elegance. And so this elegance often drove attachment and they would uh, follow a certain speaker. Well, this kind of bad disease seemed to have made its way into culture. Now here we see the four parties that have divided, right? Uh, First, the Paul party that would have uh, followed the founder of the church. Maybe they would have been like, there can be no one like Paul. No one can follow him, right? He is uh, the supreme, the best, right? Uh, They may not have liked him as much then as they do now, uh, but they look kind of to the good old days, kind of the heydays of when Paul was here leading our church. So there was those that attached to him that were in a party with him. The second was Apollos. Paulos was an Alexandrian Jew, and uh, it is said in Acts, we see kind of a description in Acts 18 uh, of Paul's ministry in Corinth, that Apollos followed Paul. He was discipled by him, uh, and he was really wise, elegant, an inspirational speaker. He was the second pastor in Corinth, and we see that people have attached to him, that they've connected deeply to him. I think of the difference uh, of Paul and Apollos, much like uh, someone who's more of a teacher than maybe a preacher, Uh, someone who's more analytical uh, rather than inspirational, maybe someone who focuses more on doctrine rather than application or focuses uh, more on the, the mind rather than the heart. You see that different audiences can take to different personalities. Now, I find this third party very unique. Um, This was the Peter party. And uh, we have no evidence that Peter ever made his way to Corinth. Maybe they heard about uh, other churches in the area, maybe in particular Galatians. Maybe they sided with Peter uh, because he was one of the twelve. Maybe he was... Uh, that fisherman. He was the working class guy. Maybe they sided with him because he was more of a traditionalist, right? We see Paul and Peter have a a bout over uh, Jewish customs in the church and how they translate and kind of uh, battling off legalism. But regardless, there was a faction of people that identified with Peter. Now, there was a fourth faction and we read that and we're like well that's the party i would like to be in right the christ party they have the right name but the wrong attitude they seem to be superior compared to everyone else right they didn't need uh, a human leading them only jesus right but paul said elsewhere follow me as i follow christ right that Uh, Having a spiritual leader is part of God's design, but yet this party separated because of kind of a firm belief, and they may have been the ones that were most prideful, most selfish, and we see these divisions and factions in the Corinthian church. Now, it's very significant because any division and faction brings about consequences, and. Much like we would experience, they too experienced consequences. And the consequences was it dishonored the name of Jesus. Uh, there is um, Alexander the Great was said uh, he had a commander, and he uh, asked his army uh, to head into battle. And there was a young man who uh, chose to retreat. Well, that young man was brought before. Alexander the Great. And Alexander started by asking his name. And he responded to say, my name is Alexander. Furious, Alexander the Great stood and said, either change your name or change your behavior. He didn't want anyone uh, that was cowardly uh, to be associated with his name. How much more, as Christians, do we bear the name of Jesus? That others look to us as their picture and understanding of the character and the conduct of who Jesus is, the one that we worship. That divisions and factions lead to consequences of dishonoring the name of Jesus. It also delights the enemies of the cross that people outside of the church Look to uh, the church to, to find things that we do wrong, and there's much available uh, written or experience that we do. Um, it has been said that sometimes the, the church is the only army that shoots himself, right? Um, now, that may be a little strong, but you can see uh, bitterness and frustration and anger with one another, leading to division and divisiveness within the church. And that delights uh, those outside of the church, disheartens the godly teacher. I know that many would attest that when they stand up before a congregation, uh, that much like the words found in John 3:30, uh, "He must become greater, that I must become less." Right, That many who speak uh, want the claim and fame only to go to Jesus. And so those that are desiring to lead people and to do it well and to point people to Jesus are disheartened by divisions and factions around certain personalities. It discourages the church family. I'm disheartened to think of how many have left the church over politics within the church. Certain divisions and factions, many pastors have left the ministry. There's been droves through COVID and uh, I think of just the difficulty of navigating that and people's different opinions, the divisions we see in culture, how that um, also played out in the church, right? It, It disheartens very quickly, the church family. And then ultimately... Um, This should be capitalized. It disappoints the spirit of God, right? Uh, God's Holy Spirit um, has given us a bond of unity, a bond of peace. That's what Jesus prayed for his church uh, before his death on the cross. And John 17, that the church, that they would be one. And so we see consequences of uh, divisions and factions, What I think the principle for you and I today is that we need to be careful of elevating personalities into parties. I think this is a message for both the one teaching and those listening, right? That we need to be very careful of um, taking significant personalities in Allowing those to lead to divisions and factions within the church. I often think, could this be possible at Grace Church Norton Campus? Right? I know many people who have said or shared, right? Um, I like Dan, I like Aiden, I like Jonathan. We have many different styles, and uh, our hope is hopefully to uh, lead others to a deeper understanding of the Word of God, right? But I think the natural inclination of us is to have preferences, and somehow with that natural inclination, I think the danger is when those preferences become broadcasted in a way to build a following, in a way to um, dismiss maybe others and uh, how they share, that we need to be careful of um, turning personalities and elevating them into parties. I think our primary spirit and heart each and every week should be, what does God want to tell me, right? I understand it may take a little bit more work to to listen to certain people, but I firmly believe, and I challenge myself, and even in other settings, is what may God and God's Word want to share or convict me in a way to be uh, more like Him, and allowing uh, the evaluation uh, um, exposition of God's Word to uh, be the ultimate definition of. How I evaluate others. It makes me think of Paul was writing to Timothy, and Timothy had an opportunity to invest in Corinth, and uh he followed Paul around, and Paul said this to him: he said, Preach the word, be prepared in and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. But this is what he says in 2 Timothy 4, three. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. May we always seek sound doctrine. The Bereans and Scripture were admonished because they went home and evaluated what was said based upon the word of God. Now, this can be a challenge. Um, I think of the great technological advancements that allow us uh, to find very gifted communicators, right? You may listen to a lot, whether it's on podcast or YouTube, and um, I think <laughs> We can be challenged to compare, um, but that idea of doing life together of um, at times, maybe in-person teaching versus uh, an online experience as, as you watch online now, right? That um, that idea has uh, been very intentional upon the gospel-centered movement that we hope is Grace Church, right? Uh, we, try and work hard, our elders, not to build around a personality. So, in our campus planning structure, we've chosen not to use video as the method, right? Now, other churches that we love have chosen differently, um, but we want to work really hard because we've seen that uh, when a personality may fall or uh, finish, right, that often the church will scatter. And so, we need to be really careful uh, of not elevating personalities into parties. Now, there was another aspect to the problem in the church at Corinth. And uh, this aspect had to do more with doctrine. You see kind of a shift, talking about following people to this idea of baptism, right? Right? Similar struggle because they were identifying a name rather than Christ with baptism, but uh, a transition nonetheless. Now, Paul doesn't choose uh, to give a systematic uh, theology about his belief of baptism, but I do find it uh, significant that he chooses to separate his role, that of preaching the gospel versus baptism. Now, baptism today... Uh, can lead to a lot of contention especially uh, among different denominations in churches and um, if if you were here had the opportunity recently uh, just last week uh, we baptized 10 people and uh, baptism is a public declaration of someone's personal decision that they had chosen previously to follow and give their life to Jesus, and they wanted to let their church family and friends know about that decision. But if you've been around, you may observe that we do it differently compared to many other churches. We like to get people really wet, right? Uh, We believe or we practice uh, triune immersion, which is to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, this practice uh is really taken from our history as uh, a fellowship of churches. We date back uh, to the early seventeen hundreds when uh, a group of people were heavily influenced by the pious and the Anabaptists, kind of uh along with the reformation and uh they chose in reading kind of Matthew eighteen in church discipline that they couldn't practice that outside of a local congregation. And so they started a church and that church grew. That church faced persecution. That church was invited by William Penn uh, to come overseas and to move to Pennsylvania. But our history uh, isn't filled with uh, only kind of the glory days Throughout centuries, our uh, movement has had glorious times uh, of progress, but sad times uh, over distraction of secondary issues. In the United States, during the Great Awakening, when many people were coming to faith in Jesus and churches were being planted, many in our fellowship were debating uh, the meat that should be served at love feast, whether carpet in the parlor was appropriate, And you see uh, this missed opportunity uh, with the mission of Jesus. And so you would even see that today with not many uh, churches planted in the heartland, right? Because we miss the opportunity uh, to make much of Jesus, to advance his kingdom, to plant churches. But fortunately, uh, the commitment to understanding the word of God, biblical truth, the people of God, biblical relationships, and the purposes of God, biblical commission, have allowed um, our fellowship to continue. And today we have some 260 churches in the United States and Canada, and some 3,000 churches overseas. Now, I think the interesting thing is the process which, with we've evolved as a fellowship. We're now called the. The Caris Fellowship, right? Which just means grace. And our fellowship a few years ago, six, seven, um, I had the opportunity to kind of be invited in some of those meetings, as did many others at our church. We went through the process of evaluating our statement of faith. And we chose different clusters. And we chose to word uh, our practice in a very intentional way to show unity that we can have with the evangelical church, but also maybe a distinction. And we tried to appropriately word that. Look at this in terms of baptism, right? We we affirm that Jesus uh, gave ordinances to the church, that baptism testifies to the reality of our salvation and identifies us as disciples of a triune God, right? When we baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But this is kind of the wording, we therefore encourage the practice of triune immersion. So historically, when maybe membership was defined to those who had been uh, immersed three times, now uh, that is open to those that have been immersed in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so I think um, our history would show us scripture would attest, because we see this in Romans 14, um, secondary issues in the church, that um, there's a way to navigate disagreement without dissension. And I think the principle for you and I is not all convictions need to lead to contention. That you and I can hold certain convictions, uh, maybe about less essential things and have disagreements within a church family. And it doesn't need to lead to um, division within the church. There's a professor at Grace College and Seminary that Dan and Jonathan had the privilege to be um, under. And uh, this guy was the name of Dr. Plaster. And uh, Jonathan um, shared just how he processed kind of uh, understanding the weight of certain theological positions. And uh, Jonathan dug out some class notes for me. And uh, this is what Dr. Plaster's class said, that there are levels of authority to doctrinal conclusions drawn from the theological process. First, direct statements of Scripture, they're accorded the greatest weight. But then we go to direct, probable, inductive conclusions all the way to outright speculation. That we can hold certain theological positions or convictions uh, with a different weight. Think of it like this, maybe an example. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. It's a direct statement recorded in scripture, made by Jesus, right? That we firmly believe that he is the only way that we can have a relationship with a perfect and holy God, right? But we would see uh, that in scripture, it says that we are a temple of God's Holy Spirit, that many people draw conclusions about what that could or should mean. And so those conclusions we would hold with less significant weight. They would be maybe probable or inductive conclusions um, about God's Holy Spirit residing in those who have said yes to Him. Now, the reality for us as um, a fellowship is that we worked hard with this in mind uh, to create clusters, right? That there is uh, a center, a core, and then um, an identity uh, of who we are. In the center is the statement that it's all about Jesus. And you can find this in our statement of faith, our uh, Caris Fellowship. We declare that Jesus Christ, the incarnate word of God, is revealed in the Bible. The written word of God is the only Savior and Lord. He is the center of our shared experience of true biblical unity. That Jesus is the main thing. It revolves all around him, that secondarily would be a core. These um, general beliefs we hold uh, about God, uh, about sin, uh, salvation, uh, about um, end times, that uh, we would be shared uh, with many other uh, fellowships, many other uh, denominations. But then there's this third category, Uh, that we would see um, would be a little bit maybe more of our distinctives, our common identity. We feel like um, best expressions of things, but we would hold uh, with a different weight than some other core theological convictions. Another example would be communion. If if you've never had the opportunity to experience communion with us, I'd invite you to do so. um, Because Communion, we uh, celebrate a threefold communion service. Right, that the Last Supper was the first communion. In the context of eating together, um, uh, there is an opportunity to uh, wash one another's feet and to take the bread and the cup. That we believe communion talks about big words here: justification, sanctification, and glorification. Right, that our salvation is found in Jesus, that we continue to grow to resemble his character, our sanctification process and glorification. One day we'll be without sin when we're in eternity with Jesus. So we would hold communion in in much the same way, we would recognize uh, maybe that others can celebrate it differently. Um, But it can be a beautiful expression that we hold of a conviction of our uh, church family, of our tribe that celebrates the full picture of Jesus. Now, Paul's overall desire is that um, this early church in Corinth would fight for unity. And this is how he starts his appeal. He says, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you agree with one another. That you be perfectly united in mind and thought. What I don't think Paul is asking is that people be identical. That um, unity does not mean uniformity. But rather, that we should strive for unity and agreement. In order to do so... It requires not majoring on the minors. That as a church family, we can keep the main thing the main thing. That we can be unique, yet unified. Unity doesn't require uniformity. There's a quote attested to uh, by St. Augustine. He says, In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. May we work hard to strive to discern together what is essential, what is non-essential, but in all things, charity and love for one another. I think of this picture of unity and agreement, and it reminds me of an opportunity I had uh, a few years ago. I am not that musically inclined Uh, But my wife and I, we went uh, to the symphony, uh, the orchestra, right? And I'm amazed to see all the different instruments and how they can work together to create a beautiful, uh, masterful piece of music, right? That they're on the same note, that they're led by the same conductor, that I recognize uh, we have a lot of distinct personalities, a lot of backgrounds, people from many different generations, but we have people on different sides of the aisle, right? But we can work together in such a way to be committed to the mission of Jesus, to be able to, to glare his good news to others, to offer the hope that we have in the finished work on the cross that allows for you and I to be forgiven. Because it's through faith that we receive justification for our sins. And it's that faith that propels us, that compels us to love and share with others. I firmly am convinced that unity may be a mark that unbelievers look to In relation to the church. In a culture of division and dissension, others look to and hope that their experience in the church is different. May we fight for unity and agreement. May we live to make Jesus make sense. May we show grace to one another in those non-essential categories. Uh, May we seek to make one another better. May we not allow certain personalities to become parties. May we always, as Jesus prayed for us, fight for our unity, strive for agreement. The church in Corinth had problems, and those problems exist today. But through putting a gospel lens on perspective that we can fight for unity, we can fight for agreement, that not all convictions need to lead to contention, but rather that Jesus would choose to use us as a beautiful picture to offer hope, grace, forgiveness, joyful abundance uh, to others that are in desperate need of that good news. Will you pray with me? Father? Uh, We just ask for your help of striving for unity. Lord, we know in our uh, humanity uh, we can fight for what's right or fight for what we're passionate about. Help us discern what's essential and not essential. Help us uh, work hard for agreement uh, to not uh, let any um, bitterness kind of lead to dissension and division and. Lord, I pray that you'd protect uh, our movement, not that uh, our name would be shared, but that you'd be glorified and you'd be honored. And I pray that you would use us in our best efforts uh, to make much of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.